welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Tom Hartman, Counterspin, and the Young Turks. What is freedom? Franklin Roosevelt died on this date in 1945. His thoughts. That very word, freedom, in itself and of necessity suggests freedom from some restraining power. In 1776, we sought freedom from the tyranny of a political autocracy, from the 18th century royalists, who held special privileges from the crown. Okay, so we overthrew the king and the crown, but now have come new royalists, says Roosevelt. But since that struggle, man's inventive genius released new forces in our land, forces which reordered the lives of our people. The age of machinery, of railroads, of steam and electricity, the telegraph and the radio, mass production, mass distribution, all of these combined to bring forward a new civilization, and with it a problem for those who sought to remain free. A problem. For out of this modern civilization, economic royalists carved the new dynasties. New kingdoms were built upon concentration of control over material things. Through new uses of corporations and banks and securities, new machinery of industry and agriculture, of labor and capital, all undreamed of by the fathers, the whole structure of modern life was impressed into this royal service. Sounds like he's talking about today, the new economic royalists of industry. Private enterprise, indeed, became too private. It became privileged enterprise, not free enterprise. There you go. This, this, by the way, from Franklin Roosevelt's 1936, July 1936 acceptance speech in Philadelphia at the Democratic National Convention for his second term as president. The royalists I have spoken of, the royalists of the economic order, have conceded that political freedom was the business of the government, but they have maintained that economic slavery was nobody's business. You get it? And they're saying it again. They're saying, hey, you know, government should stay out of this. Uh, we'll do WTO, right? No problem. They granted that the government could protect the citizen in his right to vote, but they denied that the government could do anything to protect the citizen in his right to work and his right to live. And again, they're making those same denials. And what must we do? These economic royalists complain that we seek to overthrow the institutions of America. What they really complain of 
is that we seek to take away their power. Our allegiance and our allegiance to American institutions requires the overthrow of this kind of power. Whoa, did I just hear a president of the United States saying that it, that our allegiance to democracy requires the overthrow of corporate power? Requires it? In vain, they seek to hide behind the flag and the Constitution. Just like today, I might add. But in their blindness, they forget what the flag and the Constitution stand for. Now, now as always, for over a century and a half, the flag, the Constitution, stand against a dictatorship by mob rule and the overprivileged alike. And the flag and the Constitution stand for democracy, not tyranny, for freedom, not subjection. And here's the, here's the big point. This is what Roosevelt brought to the table. It's what Teddy Roosevelt based his whole campaign on. It's what Roosevelt brought to the table is that democracy involves economics as well as everything else. on protesting French students and workers have been colorful, to say the least. U.S. readers have learned that the students, resisting a new law that would make them part of a new class of more easily fired workers, are lazy, overprivileged, reactionary somehow, but above all, dumb. Dumb because they don't understand what for U.S. reporters and editors is a gospel truth, that the U.S. neoliberal corporate-centered economic approach is the key from which all good things flow. Sure, there's winners and losers, and some people may not like the immediate fallout, one surmises, but corporate globalization is undeniable and ultimately for the best. Once an economic approach is naturalized in that way, it becomes very hard to see it as not the inevitable march of history, but a set of political decisions in which different actors are in fact fighting over priorities and power. By so obscuring the issue, the media go a long way toward discouraging public participation in the decision-making. Our next guest's new book goes beyond the corporate media's smokescreen on these issues. It's called The Global Class War, How America's Bipartisan Elite Lost Our Future and What It Will Take to Win It Back. He is Jeff Foe, founder and former president of the Economic Policy Institute, contributing editor at the American Prospect. Welcome to Counterspin, Jeff Foe. Oh, it's just great to be here, Janine. Well, let me ask you first. Your book is called The Global Class War, which is already a fundamental recast of the way international economic issues are presented. We're accustomed to think of it as national economies competing against one another. The U.S. has to worry about China and so on. Do you think that that picture is just no longer appropriate? Well, you know, it's no surprise that the global economy should be creating classes that cross borders 
Every society has, uh, has a class. But with national societies, such as the kind of society we've had over the last uh, hundreds of years, politics involves deals and compromises among the classes over who gets what. We had a new deal that essentially dominated uh, politics in this country for 50 years, and it recognized that even though there's lots of tensions and, and fights over between capital and labor, they each needed each other. Dwight Eisenhower, Secretary of Defense, once said, what's good for General Motors is good for America, and, and uh, many people sort of laughed at that, but they understood that was right, and the auto workers understood that was right. But in a global economy where corporations can get their workers elsewhere, they have now an excuse and a, a reason for tearing up that social contract, and that's what we see here in America, that's what we see in France, that's what we see in Latin America, that's what we see in countries all over the world as elites in each of those countries increasingly have more in common with each other than they do with people who share their nationality. And the press still talks about this and gets the people to think about this as if it were still just nations versus nations the way it was 50 or 100 years ago or 500 years ago. The language that they use obscures what's going on. For example, we talk about the Chinese economic threat. But if you decompose that Chinese threat, it's not so much China, but it's a business partnership between the Chinese commissars who provide the cheap labor, often at the point of a bayonet, and American and other multinational investors who provide the capital and the technology. But the press is uninterested in this new form of really enterprise and organization that has been created by this global economy. So we still talk about China and the U.S., etc. You see the same thing in our discussions about world poverty. Mm -hmm. It's always rich countries and poor countries. But as an old mentor of mine, the late Michael Harrington, once said, there are rich people in poor countries and poor people in rich countries. And the, the connections between the rich and the rich simply go by the boards. I use NAFTA as the prime example in the book because it's easier to see. It's just three countries, and studying it allows you to see the mechanisms and how this works. Plus, NAFTA was the real template for the World Trade Organization and uh, the other rules of this global economy. And NAFTA, even 12 years later, the way the press treats it is mostly it was a good thing because the establishment, both Democrats and Republicans, say it was a good thing. Sometimes the press will say, well, you know, some people say it was good, some people say it wasn't so good, but hardly ever does the press go back, it's only 12 years, and ask what was promised and what was delivered. And so in this immigration debate that we're having now, Bill Clinton promised that if we pass NAFTA, illegal immigration from Mexico would be vastly diminished, if not eliminated. And of course, what happened was it more than doubled. Instead of providing for middle-class growth in Mexico, where people could earn a decent living, NAFTA blew away the rural areas. This is a story that still isn't told. NAFTA provided for Mexico to drop its tariffs against U.S. corn and Canadian wheat. Mexican farmers could not compete against those big subsidized agribusinesses. 
Several million people have been forced off the land in Mexico. They go to the cities. There's been not any jobs in the city, so what do they do? They come across the border, and people are risking their lives. More than 400 people died last year crossing the border, desperate for a job that they could have a decent standard of living. And the origins are completely ignored. And so we have this debate that's going on now in, in Washington. Uh, you know, should we build a wall? How high should the wall be? And completely ignored is the process by which these desperate people end up on our shores. Well, we're talking about basic reporting on the impact of policy, and I think there's also something about the very sorts of questions that journalists ask. We always hear about winners and losers during NAFTA. That was like a homily, you know, but so often... Globalization seems to be being used as a stick to set workers back on a particular issue. In the French example, we had ABC's David Wright lecturing a protester who was complaining about the law that would allow them to be fired without cause. And David Wright said, it's this way the world over. Uh, We we don't tend to talk much about whether or not it's right. And I was interested that on Bill O'Reilly recently, you just asked flatly, well, what's wrong with seven weeks vacation and a 35-hour week? What's wrong with it? Why doesn't the matter get engaged that way more often? Wouldn't that be the news-you-can-use approach? One of the things I've noticed with the press is that they take these questions. For example, we still have the 40-hour week that's now about 70 years old. One would have thought that over the last seven decades that we could have taken as a country more of our growth in leisure time, time off for the kids, time off for the families. There's no critique of that. And on the other hand, there are features written, you know, not all the time, but they're common features, which talks about how difficult it is for normal people to continue their marital relations, to take care of their kids, to have a a little bit of time on the side. Everybody is stressed out. And yet those things are not put together. So the same newspaper that carries features saying, you know, Americans don't have any time for decent family relationships. You know, when the French go out because of something like that, all they do is lecture. You know, in the end, it turns out that the money dominates and corporations don't want to hear about people demanding more time off. So they don't connect those dots even when they are, in fact, reporting the the various realities. That's right. They don't connect the dots. And as I say, the immigration issue is another one. There's plenty of stories out there that would help people understand what this globalization is about. Another story that I talk about in the book is the way U.S. banking elites in the Clinton administration and in Wall Street combined with Mexican elites in privatizing the Mexican banking system in getting it subsidized by the poor Mexican taxpayer. The rich don't pay taxes in Mexico. And then the Mexicans then sold it to Citigroup and other of these banks so that foreigners now own 90% of the banking system in Mexico. That was one of the real objectives of NAFTA. And it's all hidden and covered and obscured by this phrase, free trade. Even when someone in the establishment will point this out, it's ignored. The first head of the World Trade Organization, Renato Ruggieri, said at one unguarded point, he said, we're not really doing free trade. He said, what we're doing is creating one constitution for the global economy. Now, that's a vastly different story. 
And it's a reasonable thing that people should be debating, well, what kind of a constitution do we want for a global economy? The one we have now, and the WTO, NAFTA, etc., is a constitution that just recognizes and protects one citizen, that is the global corporate investor. It's a reasonable question where globalization should go, how to organize it so that the benefits get spread around, but there is none of that. What the reporter said to those French demonstrators is just the typical line, and that is, hey, forget about it. This is the way it is. Well, it's not the way it has to be. It's the way it is because there are powerful people who are getting the benefits from it. We've been speaking with Jeff Foe. The book is called The Global Class War. It's out now from Wiley. Thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. I had a good time. Back in 1970, Milton Friedman wrote an article for the New York Times magazine that really defined the whole Chicago School of Economics idea of what a corporation is and what it's all about. And he suggested that basically the social responsibility of business is simply to make money and that businesses should not be socially responsible organizations. They shouldn't be making contributions. They shouldn't be making donations. And, you know, I have to say, in the context of a, the, the point of business is to make money, I find it hard to disagree with that. However, here's the problem. We have now given corporations more than simply the right to make money. We have given them the right to influence legislation. At one time in the United States, that was a crime. We have given them the right to buy legislators, to donate to legislators. At one time in the United States, that was a crime. We have given them the right to change the laws of sovereign nations. For hundreds of years, that was, that was impossible. We have given corporations so much of our governance. And now, ever since Reagan came into office and began the process of turning the, the normal functions of government, the normal things that we, the people, would do for ourselves without skimming money off the top so that we can hand profits off to shareholders, but holding on to those profits and reinvesting them in our infrastructure, in our roads, in our schools, in our, in our uh, traffic systems, in our air traffic system, in our railroads, in, in our food supply. Since we began privatizing these things and skimming the cream off the top and giving them to corporations, what we have ended up with is corporations that have become more than they should be. Now, you could argue, and it was argued back in the 70s, and it is still to this day, that a corporation doing a social good is a desirable thing if that social good returns a profit to the corporation. And this is generally how corporate philanthropy is done. For example, a corporation will, you know, buy a park. And the park gets named after them. And so they put 100000 bucks into the park, and they, you know, call, take a tax deduction on it, but they justify it to their board of directors by saying, that $100,000, because our name's on that park, we're going to sell a, a, enough product to make that $100,000 back in profits plus more. That's traditionally how corporations have to justify this. And this goes back to a Supreme Court ruling back in, as I recall, the 1930s in the state of Michigan that involved the Ford Motor Company. And, in fact, Henry Ford was being sued over, you know, over social philanthropy, right, raising wages to his employees. How dare he do that, right? He's just screwing it up for the rest of the auto manufacturers. So anyhow, Milton Friedman and the Chicago School, their, their theory is corporations should just make money. 
And if that's all corporations did, I'd say, yeah. But the problem is that we have given corporations personhood. We have given court, and, and they should not have personhood. We have given them the rights of persons. They should not have the rights of persons. We've given them First Amendment right to lie. We've given them the Fourth Amendment right of privacy. We've given them the Fifth Amendment right to, to remain silent and not incriminate themselves and, and all the other protections associated with the Fifth Amendment, you know, against double jeopardy and so on. We've given them Sixth, Seventh, and Eighth Amendments, uh, rights to, to trials by jury and so on. The ability to litigate endlessly, it seems. And, you know, some, some of these arguably corporations should have the right to a trial, arguably. But, I, frankly, I think that corporations are created by government. This is the thing that we keep forgetting. Corporations are creatures of us, of society. We, society, we collectively get together and we say we are going to establish the right of a corporation to exist. And we do this... You know, if you if you want to start a corporation, you have to go to the local secretary of state's office and file articles of incorporation. We do this at the state level. There are the word corporation does not exist in the Constitution, and that's why there are only a, a small handful of federal corporations, federally chartered corporations, because to create a corporation at the federal level literally requires an act of Congress. So Amtrak and and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, before they were turned private, uh, federally chartered corporations. Uh, you know, there's a few federally chartered corporations, the FDIC, the Federal Reserve Banks. Uh, but but by and large, corporations are, are created and chartered at the state level. And the, the, the deal, the compact, the contract that we create with people who start corporations, and, and I'm speaking as one of them, right, is... You're welcome to run a corporation and make and make money in our society. You're welcome to use us as consumers and sell your product. In fact, we think that would be a great thing if you've got something good to sell us. But the day your activity begins being toxic to we the people, we reserve the right to put an end to the existence of your corporation. And in fact, corporations were routinely subject to the, the corporate death penalty up until the 1880s in the United States. And thousands a year in states all across the United States for not behaving in ways that were serving society. So you have to, you have to behave in a way that at least, at the very least, doesn't harm society and make money. And we have lost track of that. This whole, the, the whole Friedman Chicago School sets aside that notion. It, it, it is anti-historical. It doesn't take into consideration the history of corporations. Going all the way back to the Boston Tea Party, when we first rose up as a people and said, no, we're not going to put up with Walmart-like behavior. Yeah, we, you know, taking a random-ass call, we do this every once in a while. It's got nothing to do with anything, but, you know, we're merciful. We're magnanimous on the show. Am I not merciful? Let's take Eric in Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric. Oh, my God. Yeah, I am so happy you took my call. I am so fired up, guys. Uh-huh. I just got some some letters from my bank about the overdraft fee because I went over a few times, and it cost me $120. Every time or total? Yeah, every time. It doesn't Woo! matter. If you go one cent over, if you use your card, they can charge it to you. And this, it needs to be like this, and this needs to stop because they're taking advantage of poor people. $120? Every what, yeah. what bank do you have? I mean, my bank I, ha- I go to 30. PNC Bank. Which, they what, all what do bank? it. bank? They all do. They used to. They used to charge ten dollars. Now they charge thirty, thirty-five dollars every time. Okay, but you just said one hundred and twenty. 
Yeah, because I did it four times. Oh, okay. Each right. time I was shopping. Each time. No, I yeah. totally, I, 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 I can relate. Um, I want to start, like, a petition. I think, like, you guys might be able to get some free press if you guys just go ape crap with the, uh, you know, starting trouble with the banks. Who knows? Eric, I'm with you, man. Thank you for the call. I, and this is what I have to say to PNC Bank. We're coming to get you, man. I have lost over, I would say, $700. 500 in just overdraft fees. But I would tack on another two or three hundred in um, in in penalty of just overdrawn fees since last September. You know, My you, bank what are you doing with your life? Well, we get it. I get a get, look. I got I do it every once in a while too, and I get really pissed, and I call and I try to reverse it. And luckily, so sometimes far, sometimes they always they they do. No, they do. I'm five for five. I reverse it every time. Oh, really? Yeah, because but you're you got to work hard. You got to be persistent. But Jill. Seven hundred dollars, man! You got to get a hold of yourself. Well, no, last last fall, I didn't realize that I was overdrawn. Um, and well, I think that's always what it is. No, I know. Of course. And I think like I think in like a day when I didn't know I was overdrawn, I probably made like right. That's the five, five purchases. Which, but I mean, like for coffee or something. So I spent like a buck seventy, or like you know, bought lunch at McDonald's or something. So I, I spent maybe a total of twenty bucks, but took it for like three hundred dollars and then the, just this last month so what i did then is I, I pulled some money out and and developed a savings account you know that, that gave me a buffer of like a thousand dollars and so if i ever dipped they um, just take the money out of they the just savings take the money out of the savings which is no big deal like i thought that was no problem but i get this letter in the mail this last month um that I, you could only do it six times and once you start doing it over six times they start charging you like 30 to $40 yeah. each withdrawal. Let me tell you what I do and what it might help people. Get so much money that they don't charge you any fees. But I don't have money. Oh, I know, but that's what you should do. <laughs> See, what I do is I put so much money in the bank that they're so grateful and I am so rich that they don't charge me when something goes wrong. Besides, I think you don't run out of money. Everybody, you right. So First of all, you don't run out of it because right. you're just rich. And then they don't charge you because they want your business so bad. I think that uh, that's what Eric ought to do, and that's what Jill ought to but do. But now I have no savings and no money. Well, yeah, mm -hmm. that's the problem. The poor get poorer, the rich get richer, no, and the Bush administration loves it. Let's, well, we can I'm not a moron. God, the people in the chat room are calling me a moron. Look, I made a mistake. I'm going to learn from it, and I'm never going to do it again. Don't call me a moron. Uh, uh, here's, I, right. She made a mistake only 17 yeah. times, yeah. Look, and on know. the 18th time, no, no, she no. will learn I from it. I didn't know that hope. I was making the mistake until I got my statement. Right. Well, I understand. If it's all coffee thing, I bet if we looked at the evidence, we'd find that some were a few days later, and they probably weren't all in a row. That's what, I'm just guessing. That the evidence might might point in a different direction, but nonetheless, uh, you know, uh, the, here's the here's okay, here. maybe it's not seven hundred, maybe it's like five hundred. Yeah, of course. Um, all right, so here's That's the a lot. Right, it was like eighty dollars. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it was way more than that. But here's the here's the important uh, lesson: is that thank God when the bankruptcy bill came up, uh, uh, the Republican leadership, with infinitely too much help from the Democrats, uh, passed a bill uh, that gave banks and credit card companies. Uh, sort of a gigantic tax break, and they'd of course uh, they they'd essentially they'd also written the um, uh, the bankruptcy bill uh, to prevent people uh, from being able to file for bankruptcy, even in the event of a, a medical catastrophe. But did nothing to keep banks from charging ridiculous fees without telling you, and uh, enormous interest rates, uh, jacking up the interest rates without telling you, and hammer customers and consumers who have eight hundred and seventy dollars in the bank with these enormous fees, because that's really the country that we want to live in They're that so will not mean. allow you to file for bankruptcy when you get cancer, but will nickel and dime you for $40 at a time when you go to Starbucks and get a latte for $2.65 and you only have $1.88 in your account. 
is ridiculous. You know how much they should charge you for that since it costs them nothing? Charge you five dollars. That's enough. Of, that would make people not want to do it. But that, but that's they don't need no thirty dollars. And it's, it's mean. It's, it's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you should also get your the flip side order. Is, you should also balance your checkbook, and you shouldn't overdraw. Yeah. yeah. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. I'm telling you, put eighty thousand dollars in the bank, and this never happens. All right. Here's my solution. If we don't strike PNC Bank within sixteen days, they are going to hit us. We cannot allow them to overdraft us before we hit them. I'm just saying. Uh, look. I prefer a diplomatic approach, but it looks like we have no other alternative. Uh, airstrikes against PNC Bank. Here may be a clue to why, in the face of what you would think would cause the economy to do poorly, the economy may be at least limping along. Now, first of all, here's why I would submit to you that the economy you would expect the economy to be doing poorly. Because conservative economic policies of increasing the wealth of the rich and decreasing the wealth of the poor and the middle class by decreasing the amount of taxes paid by the the, the rich and the ultra-rich for their share of the usage of the commons and for their share of access to the opportunity that we call the American dream, by decreasing that and by increasing the taxes on average people and working people and and the working poor, and by cutting what are called transfer services, if you want to call them that, by cutting services, cutting medical, Medicare, cutting education funding, cutting the basic infrastructures, uh, the, the, the basic social safety net, doing away with that for the middle class and the working poor, you would think because the vast majority of economic activity in the United States is driven by the, by the working poor and the middle class buying things, see, that is 99% of us. You would think uh, 98% of us, let's say, 99%, 99% of us earn less than $390,000 a year. 98% of us learn, earn less than $150,000 a year. So you would... You would think that the you know the vast majority of Americans, if you look at the vast majority of Americans, their spending is what drives the economy. So if you make it harder for them to have money to spend, you would think the economy would go into a tailspin. So why hasn't the economy collapsed in the face of Bush policies that have driven up the wealth of those at the very top who, who don't spend so much? I mean, they already have their mansions. They already have their their corporate jets. Yeah, there's you know they might buy a new yacht, but it's not really going to stimulate the economy of the United States because it's such a small percentage of the, the of the total GDP and it's such a small number of people, relatively speaking. We're we're talking a few hundred thousand people, the rich and the very rich. So if we are reducing the money for the middle class and the working poor, how is it that they're still spending money? Well, a couple of things have happened. Number one, Alan Greenspan drove interest rates down so low that the value of housing went up. Now, most people, they say they own their home. They don't actually own their home. They owe, in most cases, more than their home is worth. What they own is a mortgage to the bank. But still, say somebody bought a house for $150,000 five years ago, ten years ago, 
And, you know, the value of a house is based on, on how much the payments are. People in the middle class don't, don't think of a house in terms of, can I afford a $150,000 house? They think of it in terms of, can I afford a $450 a month house payment, a mortgage payment? And so, as interest rates go down, the, the, the cost of the payments on a $150,000 house goes down. Or what used to be the payments on a $150,000 house at, say, 7% mortgage rates, now is, you know, say, say it's, I, I just, I, you know, I don't have a mortgage calculator in front of me, so I'm just, you know, these are just for example numbers. But say, uh, you know, the house that you wanted to buy was $450 a month at 7% interest rates. When interest rates go down to 5% for $450 a month, you can now buy a house that's worth, say, $30,000 more. It's now it's $150,000. Now you can afford a $180,000 house. So what that means is the people who are who have $450 a month to spend are going to start looking at $180,000 houses, which means that everybody with a $150,000 house, a $450 a month house, is going to start asking $180,000 for their house, right? So the cost or the value, the perceived value of housing goes up as interest rates go down. Now, when the value of the housing goes up, then the equity that you have in your house seems to increase. And then you get all these ads on TV for all these companies, you know, Ditech.com and, and LendingTree and, and everybody else, everybody and their brother out there saying, hey, refinance your house and take out the equity. So the driving down the interest rates increases the value of housing. People then refinance their house and take out that cash and spend it. So that's, that's a big chunk over the last five years of what has been keeping this economy from completely, from not completely collapsing, but from having a serious, serious problem is the fact that housing values have gone up and credit has been easy. Now, interest rates are starting to go up. And when they pass the 6 or 7% threshold, you're going to see some real significant changes. I lived through this. We saw this in the 1970s. First house I bought, we bought on a, with a mortgage that was 13%. And that was, ultimately, that was low. So what that does is that drives the value of houses back down again. So when the value of houses goes down, suddenly people are holding a $150,000 mortgage, and their house is now only worth $110,000. One of two things happens. Either, either they just walk away from it, or the bank comes to them and says, Hey, you owe $150,000. It's only worth $120,000. You better pay us the $30,000 difference right now. Yes, that's in your mortgage contract. They can do that. So anyhow, that's one of the things that has fueled the, the economy. Secondly, people are driving up their credit card debt. Average American owes $7,000 on their credit cards. But third, and this is the most important one, how the Bush administration has been able to make the economy look good when in fact it's not, is war. War. W-A-R, War. Treasury Department reported Wednesday the federal spending totaled $250 billion last month. That's up 13.7% from a year ago. Federal spending is 13% higher than it was a year ago. For every, for every, for every $100 spent a year ago, $130 was spent this year. 
Now, that's money from our tax dollars and money borrowed in the name of our children and grandchildren that Bush is spending right now. Where is he spending it? He's spending it in ways that indirectly and in many cases directly stimulate our economy, largely through the Department of Defense. In fact, if you go over to defenselink.mil, this is the Department of Defense's website, DOD 101, an introductory overview to the Department of Defense. Welcome to the Department of Defense. We are America's oldest company, largest company, busiest company, most successful company. Now, first of all, the Department of Defense is not a company. Government is not a business. Government is of, by, and for we the people, run by the people, answerable to the people. Somehow the, the cons have rewritten this thing. I mean, this is just absolutely bizarre. But they, they, they go on and they say, the Department of Defense has a budget of $371 billion and over 2 million employees. Walmart has a budget of $227 billion and employs 1.3 million people. In other words, the Department of Defense is a third again larger than Walmart, which is the largest company in America. ExxonMobil has a budget of $200 billion and employs almost 98,000 people. The GM company budget equals $180 billion and has a workforce of 365,000 people. Now keep in mind, the Department of Defense, $371 billion budget, 2 million employees. And these are good-paying jobs. So as the Department of Defense grows, the economy grows. And the Department of Defense is growing like crazy. And the businesses associated with it are growing like crazy. So basically what we have here is an economy that without a war will collapse. And, and, and particularly without, without uh, the, the added prop of cheap credit. Because this government's policies, because the conservative economic policies have been to reduce the amount of money available to the working class, to the middle class and the working poor, and increase the cash available to the very wealthy, which doesn't stimulate the economy. So they've had to stimulate the economy indirectly by, by driving down interest rates, which lets people borrow from their house and their credit cards, number one, and by pumping enormous amounts of money into the DOD budget. And that's the only thing that's holding it together, my friends. It's glue and bubble gum. This is Jill Pike from the Young Turks, and you're listening to us on the Best of the Left podcast. Catch the entire show live at theyoungturks.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, this is a story that I think might just barely squeak by as being defined as entertaining. So I'll give it a shot. Speaking of Walmart, I have a, um, you know, dirty little secret uh, wing of my family, just like most of us do. And whenever I mention to anybody that, um, well, when I mention to them about this, this part of my family, the only way that I have to describe them is that my aunt and, you know, her family... When they go out of town, you know, when they go on vacation, wherever they go, they make it a point to go to, quote, the local Walmart just to check it out. And, I mean, that's, that's really all you have to say to, um, to really convey, you know, that, um, well, it just conveys everything. You really need to know.
so and they're very nice and and they you know send me gifts every christmas even though i haven't uh spoken to to any of them in um i don't know maybe maybe nine years or something ridiculous like that so this most recent year the gift that i got was just a simple gift card from walmart and you know that's agonizing because on one hand if you don't spend the money then walmart just got twenty dollars for free and if you do spend the money then you just bought something from walmart so i agonized over this um you know, i mean i didn't lose any sleep but it uh you know i thought about it for a while i i held on to that card for a while until you know finally i came up with an idea and you know the thing started falling into place and i finally felt like i i had a purchase in mind that would uh that i i could i could uh, sleep easy with and that purchase was a $20 microphone the very same microphone I'm speaking into at this moment. And that was the birth of this show, which is dedicated to the total destruction of everything Walmart and Republican and etc., etc. On a completely different note, today is a very exciting day, and by today, I mean tomorrow and because that's when it'll be posted and by tomorrow i mean whenever you're listening to this and the exciting thing is that starting today by which i mean tomorrow by which i mean whenever is another day that podcast alley has been reset to zero and you can you know we don't get to do it much so Take advantage of all the chances you get to vote in a system that you know that your vote counts. Because when you go to Podcast Alley and you vote and you get the email and you click the link that says, yes, I actually voted. And then you go to Podcast Alley and hit refresh and your vote is there immediately. So I would very much appreciate if you do that for me, the link uh, directly to my um, my show's site on Podcast Alley is on my webpage, but you can also just search for Best of the Left at Podcast Alley, and um, you'll be all set. Thanks for all the help, everybody. Thanks for the support, and that's it for today. Have a good one.